Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi, Adam Koontz, Aaron Uphoff, and David Apple. So you know what that means. The Conclave has reconvened here at A Word Fitly Spoken. Gentlemen, good to talk to you all. <laughs> yeah, good to talk to you. No, it's, I think it'd be a good episode. Yeah, for yep. those of you who are new to the podcast, The Conclave is where we take listener questions. And it's also where we are completely unscripted, as always, and we'll probably get shadow banned, if not outright banned. I am proud to say that as of today, one of our uh, YouTube videos was taken down as well. <laughs> so True story. Our episode on the Christian conscience was removed for, quote, medical misinformation. So you know it's good. That's why you need to listen to it. <laughs> so we have, uh, you know, it's good to get the band all back together here. David Appled is fresh off of his fourth vacation uh, this year th- thus far. Uh, I'm happy Aaron to Uphoff, be able to have a little bit of time to squeeze you guys in, but I don't know where well, we're going next. Somewhere good. Said- the timeshare, <laughs> I got a lot of timeshare options. You just, you go to the presentation, they give you a free room. <laughs> uh, Aaron Uphoff has given us signs of life. He is here with us in the virtual studio, and he is in his wood-paneled, bunker in illinois how are things going for you aaron things are going great in illinois i ran out of excuses not to be here so here i am excellent and adam <laughs> how are things in uh the rocky mountains uh they are sunny and roughly 75 degrees so it's a day don't even have to put the swamp cooler on swamp cooler real cozy in the morning coffee outside 60 degrees gets up to 75 never too hot pretty nice wonderful yeah. It's back in the nineties here. So I just <laughs> I find a, a nice damp rock to crawl under. Yeah, I think Willie, you and I are under the same my weatherman informed me today that I'm we're in a heat bubble. Are you in a are you in the same heat bubble as I am? Yeah, I I, I have to be. And I have to think that Arkansas was there in at creation. <laughs> but yeah, this this heat bubble just sort of popped up, so we are Yeah. It'll be all right. Fall will be here soon. Zoan, how's the high plains? We are beginning the descent into winter, so <laughs> I'm just preparing, you know, growing out some extra extra hair, that sort of thing, <laughs> to be ready. It'll be good. <laughs> well, we're we're happy to report. Congratulations. <laughs> The density, uh, I don't know if we have a mathematical calculation of this, but the density of your hair, Zelwyn, uh, would be, that'd be a good thing to calculate. I don't know if it can be done. Yeah, we'll, get be word, we'll get Word Fitly Labs on that. We'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. <laughs> uh, no, honestly, it's, it's quite nice today. Uh, it is starting to get cooler, though, so it's not going to be too much longer. Snow in October is not unheard of in this part of the world, is all I'm saying. Sure. Well, all right, guys. Well, let's um, let's just go ahead and dive right into our first listener question, if if you all are ready. Yep. Uh, yes, sir. All right. Can the church truly be one with so many earthly schisms, and where are its limits? And how true is extra ecclesium nulla salis? Okay, nulla salis. Everybody's going to be shy on this one. So, what is the what does the epistle say? Or what, the, what does the scripture say? That there must be divisions among you, right? But I think that this question is more about within the supposed visible church on earth, how can there be so many divisions and yet still claim a true church? 
Yeah, I think because the, the question, maybe I'm taking it the wrong way, but the question seems to also be getting at the problem of false doctrines in the church to begin with. And how do we deal with such things? Because I know that many, many people will, you know, may approach the idea that as long as we have the same name, as long as we kind of all believe in generally the same thing, that therefore we are united and we can say that we're all Christians. That's all you need to worry about. I mean, do I, am I taking that the wrong way, guys? Or I mean, what do you think? Well, I mean, then there's also kind of the a little bit of a cop out answer, which is, oh, it's all it's only the church invisible that matters, right? But you really can't get by with saying there's no visible church. No, but I, I think that I think that sometimes when people are asking questions like this, or maybe even this question, there is a presumption that visible unity is the highest good or the most desirable thing, or even something that despite the the record concerning humanity's behavior and proclivities in both testaments is even possible. So, it, I mean, it's notable to me that you get visible unity where you get organizational coherence, something on which the New Testament seems to set little priority. So it doesn't outline a Roman curia. It doesn't outline, you know, the various mechanisms of the Anglican communion. You can obtain visible right, unity it, it, it outlines, organizationally. I was, I was just saying it outlines a clear Presbyterian form of government. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start you spicy. The, you want to do the Christmas question now? Or, <laughs> you know, I, so I think... I, I think that one of the issues here, but I, I mean, I see this, I see this in Lutherans too, because Lutherans will, it, it might, it sometimes takes them two or three steps being led by the hand to admit that like um, a Baptist is a Christian sure. or this, because I think that they think people naturally think they give a certain priority to organization and to organizational existence and unity and institutional weight. And relatively little priority to where actually is the gospel creating faith, which is both a reality concerning the invisible church, but also a reality concerning the visible church. Um, those people are Christians. They do know the gospel. The divisions, I don't know if they'll ever be overcome prior to Jesus's coming, but those are Christians. So do I need organizational unity with them now to admit that or to admit that they're the church? I don't think I do. Did the the second half of that question though it made it sound like the whoever's asking this uh, is kind of asking it from the flip side of what you're getting at, Adam, which is okay when you have all these um, church bodies that claim to be Christian, at what point do we say this is no longer a part of the church, or who you know who gets to make that call? You know, you think about it. Maybe it maybe somebody comes into your church and uh, they I don't know. This is like so hypothetical that it's hard. <laughs> maybe, maybe what you said did just answer it. But like, could there ever be a time where somebody would come into your church and you would say, "Well, you're coming to me from"? I think for us, people often ask this about the ELCA. You're coming to me from the ELCA. Was that you know? Was your baptism valid? Would there ever be a time where we would be able to say, like, "No, this that denomination is no longer Christian." I, I mean, I think that what we're dealing with 
with something like the ELCA is a little bit different than what we deal with where we have, I don't know, a Mormon baptism or a JW baptism where the organization has a certain doctrine, but we're always asking about the substance of what is either confessed by this church that this person belonged to and or therefore what was confessed by them or upon them or over them in, say, baptism. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of the ELCA, I'm asking, you know, what you know, what, what was the formula used? Um, because here's what that means in the ELCA officially or something. And these things are, these things are not hard and fast, especially with something that is developing as rapidly theologically as mainline Protestantism. But I think that the reason that we're asking them is because we're recognizing that doctrinal substance of what is believed and confessed or believed or confessed is always more important than the particular organization to which the person belong. So if I'm trying to determine limits of the church, then if I'm forced to say something about that, I'm going to say something doctrinal, not organizational. I'm going to say, is there a Trinitarian confession of who the divinity is? But that's, that's a doctrinal answer, not an organizational answer. Well, I mean, it should be said though, that organization or, or, you know, we'll use that word and doctrine are not exclusive either. I mean, one would ideally lead to another. But but you're talking about just bare organizational unity, not the um, not actual unity in practice per se. You know, because, yeah. Yeah, 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 and and there is a difference there. I mean, and and so then, so the second sort of the follow up question, then, what do we make of outside of the church? There is no salvation. Well, I mean, that's still true in a very fundamental sense, you know, because we recognize that apart from Christ, apart from His Church. There is no salvation. But again, I mean, do we draw the question of the organization into that, Into that, like, say, Rome does? Do we make it just kind of a wide open, you know, whoever claims to believe in Jesus, you know, they're in kind of a thing? You know, where, where, do, we, where, do, we, where do we put the limits on something like that statement? But, at, I mean, at its, at its heart, it is still true, right? Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Well, let's, um, any other, anything on that? Okay. Well, let's, um, speaking of organizational unity, let's just tackle a question about the Concordians. Let's talk a little bit. And there's some of these questions that we just ultimately can't answer. So I'll just, uh, I'll read the question as presented. I'd like a word fitly analysis of what led Concordia's from essentially church vocational schools to liberal arts university, uh, to, to liberal arts universities, who were the major players? What was the goal? Is there any viable plan for salvaging them? That's a specific historical question, which, I mean, maybe one of you guys has the answer to. Uh, if I had to guess, though, uh, that it wasn't so much as a, a plan to do that, like, oh, we really need to move these things away from this. But it was just sort of a drift that happened over time where additional programs and majors and departments were added. And eventually they got bigger as the church work one got smaller. I mean, can any of you guys speak to the actual? And, and I mean, would that they were just liberal arts universities. They've actually <laughs> gone into just gen ed stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, the the really key thing here is is not anything about any one Concordia, because also the reasons for the closures of the ones that have closed and even ones that people don't even remember existed, like Concordia Oakland, which is sort of a predecessor in a way to what's now Irvine. Those are as various as the different institutions, because the really crucial thing is the collapse of the traditional education educational system to produce pastors through the St. Louis Seminary, 
when that collapses because of a collapse of trust, not of students or money, but of trust in the 70s, the other institutions have to find reasons for existing. Now, one of them, about which David knows more than I do, Ann Arbor, is founded also in reaction to that as sort of like the safe, conservative Concordia you can send your kids to. But that's already something different than a pre-ministerial school to prepare people to send them to the senior college and then on to St. Louis. So it's the collapse of that system by virtue of the doctrinal crisis that you get in the LCMS. So the key players are all the key players that you would be familiar with, anything that you know about Seminex, really, along with some of these. But that's really it. That's what it comes down to. And then everyone else is adrift or needs something to do or a a way to survive. Or like Irvine um, is founded afterward as a kind of alternative, like, oh, what we really need is a liberal arts college, which we did have before all of this in St. John's in Winfield, Kansas, was founded as a liberal arts college. Everything else that is now a Concordia was founded in order to train ministers. Once that sole purpose goes away, the whole thing is, what is this for? Why are we here? Can we survive? Right. You know, it will make a good essay or perhaps even an episode on just how um, the cultural change that happens in the 60s in America and then really that change in the Synod in the 70s we get hung up on Seminex, but we don't look at those broader ripples that are happening, you know, a little bit later in that decade. But I recognize that this isn't a Concordia, but something that I find kind of interesting that might speak to this is the early, how do you want to say, approval of like Valparaiso mm-hmm. as part of that, of the system sort of thing. Yeah. You know, you go back in the old, the old like stats books and stuff like that. They talk about what's happening at Valparaiso. Uh, Walter Meyer himself like commends Valparaiso on several occasions. You know, it was seen as kind of a a good thing for them, for people to send their kids to because it was considered to be a Lutheran institution. But eventually because of this erosion of trust, I mean, that's not true anymore. So I know I again, I recognize that's not a, a Concordia per se, but I do think it's indicative of this erosion that we see happening over time. Yeah. And I think Valpo is a good index of you have a division of labor. So River Forest and Seward train teachers, the others train ministers. Okay. We don't specifically need that anymore. That's not going to produce enough students anymore. So what do we do instead? Because Valparaiso was the comprehensive liberal arts university. I mean, I think it was supposed to be sort of like the, the Lutheran Notre Dame (laughs) and it just didn't, it did not get there doctrinally or did not remain where it was supposed to, although it was always outside the LCMS, organizationally speaking. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, yeah, we forget the precedent. There is precedent for outside the Synod institutions of higher education. (laughs) Just interesting. Just throwing it out there. Well, uh, last few minutes in this segment, let's, let's tackle a very, a very dense question, which just simply says skinwalkers. (laughs) <laughs> now as our uh, as our listeners are very much aware the skinwalker is a navajo witch who can take the form of animals or perhaps possess animals and uh we are a anti-skinwalker podcast there are no skinwalkers in this dojo should you encounter a skinwalker don't make eye contact with said skinwalker just keep going you don't you don't want what the skinwalker is selling <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, nobody in the podcast as of now lives in Skinwalker territory, so we're pretty much uh, we're pretty safe from that. And uh, I don't know, Adam's inching closer though. I am, but th- this was the the Utes and the Arapaho, so they're still on horseback. They're not uh, wandering around being haunted by the Anasazi. Right. So we're still. And I guess, okay. and actually, I'm just gonna throw this question at you: What is the regional cryptid that all of you have? What do you have in North Dakota other than yourself, Zoe? <laughs> uh, the jackalope. Do we, I don't know if I'm counting the jackalope. I'm not gonna let you off the hook that easy. Oh, fair enough. I'd have to think about it for a minute, but I know the jackalope is is common. In fact, I've seen you know jackalope in restaurants around here. So there you go. But me, um, we have the Arkansas howler, which I think is fake. But we also have the Boggy Creek monster, the folk monster from the Legend of Boggy Creek, which is a classic of uh, low budget cinema that you all should be watching. And that monster's out there. So, Aaron, JB Pritzker. No. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. David I mean, Letterman is. Yeah, this is not AM radio. Yeah. <laughs> the snipe. I don't know. I I can't even think of one regional for Central Illinois. Willie, you've lived here for a little bit too, so. Yeah, well, there's really not a a good regional one. I mean, and I do kind of low key miss JB Pritzker. You know, <laughs> just the just the sheer obvious corruption. I love it. It's just <laughs> it's just like I'm watching a movie like. Like you've written the villain too cartoony. No, this is real. <laughs> um, David, what do they got down in Paducah? Well, there there are giants buried in Kentucky, but I don't think that counts as cryptids. Right. That's. I mean, that's almost like. A, well, it's a different History. category mistake than the jackalope one. Yeah. Right. Well, you, aren't you also close to the Henderson um, Hopkinsville uh, UFO sighting or uh, alien sighting? Yeah, uh, well, we are close to Hopkinsville. I don't know. I I'm not familiar with this um, story. So the I Kelly guess Hopkinsville I have encounter. To do. So it's going to be down in uh, well, down in Hopkinsville, of course, and um, so uh, that's in Christian County for those who are keeping up. Mm-hmm. And uh, this family's out in their in their rural home, and they're accosted allegedly by space creatures, which they fire at because one would. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Isn't this the beginning of Back to the Future? <laughs> That's where they got the idea. Yeah, the Hopkinsville Goblin is what they were initially called, by the way. But um, yeah. So, well, it's, I mean, Hopkinsville is right next to Fort Campbell. So I'm sure that there's something military. Something got out. I'm telling some, you, something yeah, some got some out. kind of military mm-hmm. research gone wrong. I, well, yeah. and much like our official mascot, the Mothman. <laughs> the uh, they try to explain the Hopkinsville away the same way, but like, oh, it was just an owl. Folks don't know what owls are because my you guys know how owls are. They're always attacking the house and trying to get in and running in packs. <laughs> I would just like to point out to our listeners that this is what Word Fitly would be if I did not have a restraining influence on Willie. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it. Hours and hours of this. Art Bell will return. But we are at our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this.
back to a word fitly spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, David Apple, Adam Koontz, and A. A. Ron Uphoff are here to answer your questions on the conclave. Well, that was a fun first segment. Let's keep diving right in. We're going to cover as many of these questions as we can. Is there any danger in breaking the Tenth Commandment regarding the call process? So, and I'm, I'm rewording the question a bit, but I think the idea is that the commandment teaches us we shouldn't try to entice workers away from there. Uh, so it does the call process do that by dangling perhaps say a better package or something over a man's head? Well, honestly, I think the only way that it would do that is if we're treating the call as a kind of, you know, purely financial sort of thing to begin with. You know what I mean? In the yeah. sense that if if I'm if I'm only really in this so that I'm going from to progressively larger churches throughout my quote unquote career, then yeah, I could see where you could come to that conclusion. But if we're approaching this in a different way, I I think we wouldn't necessarily run that kind of a risk. I don't know. Sure. Am I wrong on that? Well, it's I think it's one of those things that really depends on on the man, and and I, and I, it really kind of presumes a something nefarious on the part of a congregation. Uh, you know, are they trying to entice them away? Yeah, I suppose after a fashion, because they want they want the pastor to accept the call. Except in that rare occasion when, I don't know, they change their minds or something. Stranger things have happened. That. Never heard of that, no. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, I, they're offering what they're offering. I think that, um, you know, that, w- that really puts a you know, a really kind of a dark shadow over it. And I guess it really, um, you know, from the congregation side, that's, you know, what do you do? What are they supposed to do? Are they for the sake, for the, for the, uh, for the safety of the, of the minister's sanctification, are they supposed to, you know, offer him a bad package or something? So they, nobody knows he's, it's really from the Holy spirit. <laughs> uh, and, and maybe really, I mean, the, the question has a point in that, we have kind of treated the call a little bit like a hiring process, like a, like call committees are now, or congregational voters assemblies are kind of like corporate headhunters in a way. And when you deal with interviews and candidates and things like that, it's really hard to avoid these kinds of things. I think that's fair. I, th- I think also that you're, I mean, entice or, or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals implies that somehow a congregation that can actually offer housing is doing something right. wrong by offering that right. when his current call, he can't afford to live there or um, a congregation that has not bothered to worry about housing, you know, sold their parsonage 35 years ago. And now, right. you know, but they're not doing anything wrong by not really actually being able to care for a pastor that they're bringing in there to make, 45,000 a year in California. So I think that there are, it's, it's not that the call is tied to the remuneration and therefore it is bad for that to be some kind of sole consideration from either the congregation or the pastor, but the man cannot be separated from his livelihood. So it is a good thing for the man to consider his livelihood and for the congregation to consider that. And providing him with a lesser livelihood is not a mark of greater sanctification. Yeah. And, you know, and I see where the questioner is coming from because it does, it does look that way. And frankly, a lot of times you don't, you don't hear as much about a, a guy taking a call 
to a smaller parish or, uh, you know, or, or deciding to go work for less money. But that's just the world that, that we live in. Um, I know some people are, for example, adamantly opposed to interviews at all in the call process simply because it leads to this kind of thing or could potentially lead to this kind of thing, I should say. You know, but it's the process that we have and we could try to fix it, but that takes like, what, four convention cycles to change anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> but th- but I, now I feel like we're going back to the organizational question from the, yeah. from the first segment. Yeah. Well, the lack of interviews also either indicated or at least uh, attempted to presume some kind of interchangeability between pastors that is not real anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, not even doctrinally, let alone personally. Like, is this guy actually, okay, this guy homeschools, is this actually a good guy to call to this giant school that we have or whatever the misfit could be? Mm-hmm. It's not that none of these things can work, but do you want to set up what is going to be an obvious conflict or difficulty? So in that case, I mean, interviews are sort of a sane reaction to the variety of pastors that there are and the variety of congregations. Mm-hmm. Well, the, also too the the question about is is having a call the same thing as enticing or, or extending a call the same thing as enticing away like someone's husband or enticing away someone who's set in a you know when you when you right. go from yeah. one congregation to another, it's not. I mean, you you are still um, carrying out the ministry into which you have been called. It's just a new place, right? Right. Um, exactly. And, and for the pastor himself to think about, like, I'm I have to stay here because this is where I was put, and uh, to even think about the fact that the Lord might want to put me somewhere else, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, is equivalent to cheating on my wife. I think is uh, you know overblowing the. Uh, or it's overstating the the call to the particular congregation. Right. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's tackle um, another question. Again, if you want to follow up with these questions, be sure to go to Word Fitly Posting and you know we can we can sort of flesh these out a little bit more as well. If God why does that other word fitly spoken exist? <laughs> well, shut it down. We don't have a good his, answer. His, his ways are not our ways, and uh, you know his thoughts are not our thoughts. So we must accept. We must accept that we're in a period of testing, and we must simply pa- we must pass the test. If you ever he, find yourself using the Google on your internet machine, and you stumble across a word fitly spoken that is a basket of apples or a bowl of apples, that's not us. Please, you you have you have gone onto the broad path. Please, please go back to the narrow way. <laughs> no, I, I think I think the real reason here is that God is, you know, calling us to use discernment. And if we can't distinguish between on the internet machine, maybe we need to ask for the gift of discernment. So, <laughs> right. there must be divisions that we may know who is true. <laughs> All right, guys. Here's one: Will we ever do an episode on AC Peepcorn? <laughs> I think we are contractually obligated not to with the Godestines crowd. <laughs> Implying we have contracts, but go on. <laughs> Zelwyn's yes, this is yes. <laughs> I mean, do you guys want to tackle it? I mean, you you know more about it than I do, so. I mean, Peepcorn's a, Peepcorn's an interesting cat, but it's kind of a, he's kind of a tricky one to handle historically, in my opinion. Adam, what do you think? 
I think that Peepcorn is a character of a very limited time in his attachment to high liturgy as well as historical criticism of the Bible. And that that time in American Lutheranism has passed because we realize that the historical criticism of the Bible eviscerates all the rest of it. So his interest, the interest would be in that way, purely historical, almost antiquarian in a way that we try not to do with the historical episodes where we're always trying to make application of it. And so my application of Peepcorn, whatever you think about conduct of the service or some of his essays on the history of vestments is that he is a figure of antiquarian interest, but not of much, if any contemporary application. All right. Very good. Okay. All right. Next question. A Scots Calvinist not celebrating Christmas. Where does it come from? And is there anything to be learned from it? All eyes are looking at me right now. Uh, it comes from the Bible, Willie Grills, twenty twenty two. This question was submitted my, my, by uh, Willie's fourth uh, undercover account. Yeah. My brothers in Christ, there are only fifty two holy days in the year. <laughs> uh, so it's not just the Scotch Calvinists; even the Continental Calvinists would not have been celebrating this. You know, once Reformed theology really took root. You know, under you know, uh, under certain regimes in England, even in the Anglican Church, they would not have celebrated Christmas, depending upon you know if the Puritan faction was winning at the time or whatever. But here's where it comes from: it is it is part of the regular principle of worship. Reformed Christians believe, historic Reformed Christians believe that only the Lord's Day is a holy day of obligation for the Christian; that no other holy days are authorized to be celebrated in the Scriptures. And so they don't see a Christmas celebration as being prescribed. So the regular principle of worship says that in order for you to bring something into worship, it has to be mandated in the, the, new, the scriptures, specifically the New Testament, and you cannot bring innovations in. So, you know, that's the kind of their theological justification. Uh, also, Christmas was known as a day of a lot of drunken debauchery, and things like that. It had those associations with it too. So it wasn't really a, like, it's not like they were banning some kind of quaint chestnuts roasting on an open fire kind of Christmas either. And that's not defending it, but that is the social reality of the Christmas celebration. And maybe that's something that we can learn from it is that if we're going to celebrate Christmas and the other holy days, we treat them as holy days, not as days just to uh, to party and, and forget about why we're we're coming together there. So yeah, that would be the Short answer on that. And then anybody else want to add to the to the Scots? Well, I was going to say, even, even if we don't want to accept a regular principle of worship, which, of course, obviously, as Lutherans, we don't, we still have to recognize that there is something to it in the sense that, I mean, if, if you think that it can be just whatever you want to do in terms of worship, go through your LSB and white out all of the scripture references that they include on the sides by various things on, in the worship. Right. You know, this, there needs to be a basis for what we do, even if we consider our basis to be a little broader than, say, a Scotch Calvinist. Right. And this dovetails into the follow-up question. Are there seemingly Christian celebrations that are recognized that we should eschew? And that's a trickier one to, uh, to answer. Uh, there are some practices that while you're free um, in, uh, you know, you have your Christian freedom to do them, I wouldn't personally do them. 
but in saying that, I worry that people would misconstrue what I'm saying and think that I have a blanket prohibition on certain things, you know? Well, I mean, Lutherans historically, uh, at least they used to anyway, you know, didn't do things like Holy Cross Day. Corpus that's Christi. Because, yeah. Corpus Christi, you know, some, but some of those things, of course, have come back into usage for various reasons. But I mean, I mean, there is precedent in Lutheranism to omit certain days that were, you know, universally observed prior to the Reformation. Yeah, I, I mean, another example would be the way that we commemorate the Reformation, which used to be more focused on the confession that we made and was therefore obviously focused more on June 25th. Right. But on a certain moment in Luther's career, right at the end of October, yeah. so that's uh, yeah. a, of of dubious uh, provenance too. That date, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and there was and there's already a big holy day that starts that night anyway. Maybe. <laughs> so I, I I agree. It's official. We're going back to June. We're doing Augsburg Confession Day. Well, doesn't that highlight the what can be learned? Was that part of the question? Like, is there something yeah. beneficial we can yeah. learn from? when you when you um, elevate kind of my, and I'm not saying Christmas is minor, but when you elevate these minor festivals or minor days and minor observances, there's only so much that the that the mind can uh, take in. And so the insight of the Calvinists there is that Sunday is the Lord's day and sun, we want Sunday to be elevated. And uh, when you start sprinkling in all these other things, you know, of course, people can handle more than just the 52 uh, days. But that insight of keeping, keeping the main thing, the main thing is, is valuable. Sure. All right. Um, next question. Why are we losing our children to the occult? I read that one and thought it was very specific. Like I, I don't know too many kids that are just kind of like, I'm, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm an occultist, but I guess it's a problem if, if it has to be asked. And the degree to which it is, I bet it starts at least uh, with maybe too much of an integration with the world. You know, I don't want this to turn into a rant against public schools, but your kids are going to be affected by whatever their peers are doing. And if you're just sending them to school with everybody else's children and in an age of smartphones and internet access and all sorts of crazy stuff that other people are doing, we shouldn't be surprised if our own kids get influenced by that. So I think, number one, it just starts with being too cozy with the Canaanites, as it were, that we live next to. Yeah. And, you know, there's an enticement there. Uh, when, when we, you know, rob religion of its mystery and of its power, people will try to find that elsewhere. I, I, if people are going to the occult, it is in part because they are not enamored with kind of a cold materialism. And so they want something deeper than that. And I would argue ex they want something experiential as well. And the occult scratches that itch for some people. And so if we could give them some mystery and give them something deeper, and I don't mean hidden esoteric knowledge, that's, that's actually behind the paywall. But if... Um, <laughs> You know, if we can, if we can give them true biblical Christianity that is rich and is deep and does have all of these things, but after a godly fashion, then they won't go after occultism, which is a crude approximation of true wisdom. Monster, monster energy drinks need to be not in your fridge. Okay, you got, you can't let your kids start drinking those things. <laughs> <laughs> no dirt bikes either. 
No, David's bringing up the chain emails. You don't remember that? The Monster Energy drinks all have 666 on them? Of course. Yeah. Can't can't be doing that. This actually came up in Bible class a few Sundays ago, too. Yeah, but you realize David unironically believes this, though. Right. David unironically is a boomer. Um, Right. (laughs) (laughs) I got to get home and start up the grill, guys, so let's keep it moving. Hey, take it easy, brother. (laughs) <laughs> um and last one for this segment eighth commandment analysis of the jerry lawler andy kaufman feud well we both know that memphis wrestling was the greatest in the wrestling territories and i'm proud that i live in what would have been the old memphis territory but how does it apply to the eighth commandment well like everything in the missouri synod everything is a violation of the eighth commandment even talking <laughs> about a wrestling match is now a violation of the eighth commandment and while you were hearing me say it you violated the eighth commandment <laughs> that's okay jesus kept the eighth commandment for you willie so that you could do this but we want to put the best construction on things and the best construction is jerry the king is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time and his feud with andy kaufman is one of the greatest wrestling feuds of all time and without breaking without bearing any false witness i will say andy kaufman probably still alive i mean maybe Zoan, when will we do just do the uh when will this turn into just a wrestling podcast too, where we just discuss the territory days? I'm ready for I'm ready for that. I'm I'm trying to decide: is it going to be you know the talking about skinwalkers on a regular basis or wrestling, or is it just going to be some weird you're, hybrid? You'll, you'll wake up one day, Zelwyn, and find I've I've steered you toward both. It's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> the man of lawlessness can't be refused, Zelwyn. You might be a restrainer, but for how long? His, <laughs> his day is here. Uh, All right, any uh, any other? Uh, comments on that one all right well we've uh, got a it actually went a little faster than what i thought uh, <laughs> you know we don't do enough uh we don't do enough wrestle talk we're gonna we are gonna fix that we're gonna just totally <laughs> isn't that what the kids want we need to you know if we if we would just start a podcast network like certain other lutheran bodies we could have all the podcasts that we want the word fitly podcast network we'll just assume all of the good podcasts under our umbrella it'll be fun by that i mean a hostile takeover as will be many things. <laughs> but that's Revelation of the Method. I really shouldn't be doing that prematurely. So. Well, all right, guys, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi, David Apple, Adam Kuntz, and Aaron Upoff. We are taking your questions on the latest conclave. Okay, so next question. Will the U.S. Space Force have chaplains? Should they err on the side of the gospel and baptize any sentient extraterrestrials they encounter or just proceed with exorcism? 
Oh man, the way you phrase that one is hard to answer. It's hard yep. to <laughs> well, hard to answer if you're one if you're one of those extraterrestrial types, D. But I think this is a pretty easy one. I yeah, mean, we already baptized one. the Irish, so. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, imagine believing in space, though. Right. <laughs> well, you know, the, the Vatican has already said they would baptize aliens, so that's reason enough not to baptize them. There it is. If you meet an alien, make them say Jesus is Lord. There's your answer. <laughs> they can't say hard. Jesus is Lord, you know what to do. Yeah, that's, that's hard for me because I want to err on the side of the gospel, but I don't want to be a Catholic. I, I'm really... As a Luther, as a Lutheran man, I'm really pinched Listen, here. Listen, I'm going to err on the gospel in the broad sense and say that includes expelling extraterrestrial demons. From <laughs> it's coming. Well, first. I think at the end of the day, what really matters is what your commanding officer would permit you to do. Um, so, yeah, it, about it's in a chain the church of, or the military. In the military, well, if you're a chaplain, <laughs> you know the the point is you just got it's it's always a chain of command issue. Right. <laughs> so, Delwyn's oddly quiet on this one. Maybe I am the extraterrestrial. You don't <laughs> know. Makes, makes, makes me wonder. I mean, you just did kind of show up one day. It's just him and some obscure Air Force bases up there. So, <laughs> Get, gets the noggin jogging. Well, all right. Uh, next one. How different are e celebrities for Gen X and down from, from how different are they from Billy Graham making people dissatisfied uh, with their home or local congregation? And can this be compared to what happened with radio preachers? Or perhaps what still happens with radio preachers. So basically, are these celebrity or these mass communicating teachers and preachers replacing the local congregation for people? I think they could have that effect. But, I mean, you take that to its extreme. You could then say, well, you shouldn't even read books or articles that weren't written by your pastor. Right. But there is a degree to which people who are good at communicating like good preachers are elevated and so they get an audience and a and a platform that's you know online syndicated or whatever and so whenever you find that stuff or come across it it's like it's 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 good and easy to listen to for people and it's i think very easy then to compare it to what you got at your local church or to to subconsciously do that so you know i don't know i mean i can i can kind of see well, both sides of this here and the question is kind of twofold so it, is is there a difference between those teachers today and like say the Billy Graham era? And I would I would argue that it's actually more of a danger of becoming dissatisfied today because there are so many voices than there were. When you had to buy radio airtime that I mean obviously shrunk the people who had a platform, but now thanks to the internet everybody can potentially have a platform. He said on a podcast. As I say on a podcast. <laughs> There's also a difference between what the Lutheran Hour was trying to do or many things like it, including Fulton Sheen's The Catholic Hour and and Billy Graham, where they are trying to drive people into church or back to church because it's, I think, easily forgotten that in the 1920s, there were a lot of people extremely worried about the fact that the majority of Americans did not report belonging to a Christian church. Mm. And so they had an evangelistic purpose that is also sometimes exists when people come off the internet from they listen to issues, et cetera, and then they came to your church or whatever it is that they were listening to uh, that is not intended to replace a parish pastor and can't any more than going to church online, whatever that means, replaces actually going to church physically with other people and receiving the Lord's Supper. So 
I think that sometimes also um, people's worries about this are sort of like worries about, oh, what if a nicer congregation calls our pastor? They're driven by envy. And instead of being envious, you should seek to be better. If you recognize that someone else is better at something, why not try harder? Why not get better yourself? Rather than worry about the fact that there's somebody out there who who could be better than you at whatever task. Right. All right. Any other comments, guys? I will not have any slander brought upon Walter A. Meyer for this. No, because <laughs> he, he also, on many occasions, would specifically say in his sermons, you know, let me help you find a church. Yeah. And, Bill, and, and Billy Graham, to his credit, home. Billy Graham, to his credit, would do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, they had workers who would try to make that happen. And yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's hard to keep you from being dissatisfied. If they're not dissatisfied, if they become dissatisfied because of a book they read, they're going to become dissatisfied about, you know, anything. So, all right. So one that, that's going to kind of go nicely with this one is, what is a proper way to make use of or learn from content of any kind that originates from non-Lutheran sources? And subsequently, what is an improper way to do so? So what's a good way to learn from non-Lutherans? This, I mean, I, I don't, at the risk of sounding too simplistic, but also go find a CPH book from the 80s or 90s, <laughs> just as an easy example, or a CPH book from the 60s is you have to compare everything you read with scripture and being worried that it doesn't have the Lutheran version of a, you know, imprimatur with the Bishop's signature on it is going to be intellectually stunting to you as a Christian. If you learn scripture, then you will have the capacity to make judgments and not be worried about what publisher is on the spine, because I can give you CPH books from the sixties, the eighties, the nineties, just as, easy examples that are atrocious. Right. And to be fair, the the listener is pushing back against this idea that we can only read confessional stuff. And yeah, I mean, you know, he makes a good point in the longer form of his question where he's like, we have to acknowledge that we've been enriched or at least we've at least borrowed from other traditions because the book of common prayer is very much a part of our liturgy. Yeah. Because we incorporated it for the, because of the English. So yeah, there, there are things to learn and, Guys, you have to understand that a lot of the church fathers, for example, that you would not put outside the kingdom are going to read very differently from a peeper or a modern uh, theologian in some things. Just be ready for that and understand that. And we've we've talked about, you know, some non-Lutherans that we would recommend people read. But like Adam was saying, you have to measure everything by scripture and you have to have some discernment, you know, and you wouldn't put a, a, a newborn like a baby Christian you wouldn't give them certain texts because they might not have the tools to read through that. But all things being equal, if you read with some measure of discernment, you might be able to profit. I uh, think, yeah, I think one thing to mention here too is to recognize that truth is not the same thing as a specific wording. Cause I think sometimes we get this idea that if something's not worded in a very specific way, like even using the exact verbiage in you know exactly the way we expect it to that therefore it's espousing something wrong and i just don't think that's the case we have to recognize that you can say the same thing even in very different words and it'll still be true so we have to kind of unshackle ourselves from our kind of self-imposed like orthodoxy consists in the the right phrasing you know what i mean yeah and because and, and i'll just be honest that that kind of thinking is not justification by faith that's justification by syntax. 
and and we want to we want to be careful. It's it's a legalism of its own of its own kind. Nothing wrong with precision theological language, but that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, and then okay, so an improper way uh, to use non-Lutheran sources. Well, you guys want to tackle that? Like, don't do the bad things that they recommend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't don't read anything so naively that you are not aware of where what it's presupposing or what its own just repeated verbiage is, what its own sort of right. verbal tics are and philosophical habits. Right. Don't be so naive. Don't do it with Lutheran books either. Right. You know, so like we love J.C. Ryle on this podcast. All of us do. But we would not say read J.C. Ryle and then subscribe to the 39 articles. Right. You know, so it's just one of those one of those kinds of things. And you really do miss out on a lot if you limit yourself to just, say, Concordia Publishing House, which I realize isn't the question, but... But it sort of is. I mean... But yeah, it sort of is. It sort of yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Any any other notes on that? All right. Well, let's... We got a couple, couple spicy ones left here. Um, the question was, was there an episode on, on usury? Uh, short answer, no. And do we recommend any, any sources on this subject? Uh, particularly the person's interested on the people defending the good usury versus the bad one, a.k.a. interest... Uh, and usury distinction. Well, there's a lot you could read about that. Try not to recommend a papal encyclical or anything. Uh, the canons of the Council of Nicaea would be a good place to start. People forget they talk about that there. Let's see. Let's try the Bible. What does the Bible say about interest? That would be one to go. Nobody wants to. Nobody wants to tackle this question because it puts us in a bit of a pickle because our economy runs upon usury. Yeah. We don't actually have a humane economy. We don't have a biblical economy. I'm bold enough to say that. And we've gone a long way from we're not going to have property insurance because it deni- it's, somehow, it's a denial of the faith to, yeah, let's start our own bank. And so that, that is a discussion that, that probably needs to happen. Now, will we do a full-blown episode on it? We'll see. But I think more and more chatter, there's more and more chatter today about usury than, than I've ever heard in my lifetime. Yeah. It's very interesting. So Christians are, are looking for this. And um, maybe we'll dig up some good stuff to read and post it in, in Word Fitly posting or something, uh, you know, for this one. But everybody's clamming up right now because they're all making making their money off of interest. I can see it in their faces. I was uh, standing in my church library today and I saw a book. Uh, this relates to the, the previous question by uh, by someone named Gary North. May his soul <laughs> yeah. rest in peace. And uh, you, you want know, the, you want that theonomy question, don't you? Well, that's I I know I downloaded the word document, so I know what's coming next in the spicy uh, questions here. But those that would be a um, these questions have been discussed by other by others more than by our by our own Lutheran theologians. So it's it might be a, a place where we have to look outside of our own publishing houses to get some light. Oh, yeah. probably in a more recent, you mean? Yeah, yeah, right. If you I mean, go back far enough, you'll find it, right? Yeah, I mean, Lutherans used to talk about this sort of thing much more frequently. And even within the Missouri Synod, we talked about this sort of thing you know, more frequently. But it really did shift over time, as, as Willie kind of hinted at there. Um, it was something that just kind of became a non-question for us because we just sort of accepted some of the assumptions of the society around us. I don't know if... Now, take that for what it's, what it's worth. I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm just saying 
our what we have done, even in the Missouri Synod, has changed over the past 150 years. Yeah. And so kind of somebody said Lutheran critique of theonomy. And I kind of want to answer the question in this way. I think if we tried a biblical model of government, I would rather have that than whatever you call what we have now. Lutherans don't like theonomy just simply because the law of God is so much at the forefront of it. It's literally what is governing. And yet it's it's really hard to get me to say, oh, I think that's a bad idea. Because you can either be ruled by God's law or the Enlightenment. Which one do you want? We, we do have the theonomic movements to thank us for. We, we should thank them, rather, uh, for the modern homeschool movement, for example, for a lot of religious victories. So when we want to, I, I don't want to dunk on Rush Dooney because he actually has brought a lot of things to the table uh, in very recent history, things that we take for granted. And I'm not saying sit down and read all the institutes of biblical law. But I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't read it either. And, and Rush Dooney, you know, it's kind of, so Doug Wilson, would you say he's kind of taken that mantle as far as the popular theonomist? Is there, is there another one alive today more notable than him? I think that's no, about it. No, not at all. He's the guy. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of Rush Dooney out there, a lot of Bonson out there. You know, it, it's worth listening to. We can critique it, but you know, it, it's worth if you want to really kind of see where theonomists are coming from to go to go and listen to them. Any other any other notes on theonomy? We'll talk about it more down the road. I promise. I promise. Word fitly nation. We'll do it. I I think re- the relationship between a Lutheran critique of theonomy and Lutheran discussion of economics, the difficulty in answering both questions is simply that in modernity, we have rarely done it. So the context in which it was done, or let's say in early modernity, involved Lutheran state religion as presumptive and therefore as legislatively obvious. Lutherans have not thought all that incisively or that long about how to relate to a society in which we are not the standard or sole option. Right. Because that will affect your both discussion or critique of, okay, what's wrong with this political philosophy, but it will also affect your critique of usury because obviously biblically usury is permissible for those who are not brothers. So these are, these are issues that I think also concern the relationship between the Lutheran church and the rest of the world. And if that's unclear, then it's really hard to give clear economic or political philosophical right. answers. But, you know, Luther is not allergic to these questions. I mean, he I mean, he lives in what is essentially a theonomic society. That's what Christian society was until, you know, <laughs> until France happened. But so you have to look at it that way. I mean, and, and there are plenty of places Luther talks about society, how he sees things. And, and even in his most notorious work that, you know. He talks a lot about this. It, it's worth it's worth looking at. You know, look at you look at the social programs too. It's all tied together. How how welfare is distributed, how alms are distributed at the time of the Reformation. A little bit later, that's a very interesting thing to dive into because it's all related to this. Yeah, and right. and so it's probably worth a deeper a deeper dive at some point. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, if you think about a problem that is prevalent in the modern United States, let's say homelessness. And then what is this, what is connected to homelessness? You got beggary, you've got addiction, you've got whatever. Right. Luther's presumption in this is a this is kind of an easy read a Carter Lindbergh book about Luther's reform of charity. Right, that is, was the one I couldn't think of. Exactly. I was supposed to get in it. I couldn't think of that. The presumption is if you have poor or you have prostitution or whatever, those are all 
presumptively Christian brothers or sisters that need to be helped. So we're going to take action on the basis of what's happening in Acts chapter five or Acts right. chapter six. That's not a basis on which a Lutheran can easily or comfortably argue. This is why we need to banish homelessness in California or something sure. in modern America. So that's the issue here is I'm not really sure we know how to relate to other people. So it's, it's easy to say, well, theonomy is unrealistic or theonomy doesn't respect whatever, whatever. I mean, we sometimes end up, I think, parroting leftist critiques of Christianity when we critique right. other Christians. And I don't want to do that. But I don't think we know how to talk about these things. So it's easy, of course, to criticize people who are trying to do so. Sure. Well, I think even, even in terms of where we are in the American situation, we almost still kind of have these same kind of assumptions, you know, that we're dealing with an effectively Christian society. You know, or that, you know, we are kind of the, the main option. And I think because that is rapidly not becoming the case, that's probably why we're floundering with this question. And maybe what we need to do is to start thinking, you know, what does it mean to be a Lutheran in a situation where we are very much the minority? Yeah. You know, where we cannot assume that the person that we're dealing with is either a lapsed Christian or going to some other church. You know what right. I mean? Well, all right. We've got just a few minutes left and one more question. Let's let's talk a little bit about the office of deacon. Who wants to tackle that one? That rather fluid office in the history of Lutheranism. Is there a specific question about this or just what just do we think us of to deacons discuss the, in the office of a deacon. Now, I guess we'll have the, we'll, we'll, we'll need the, uh, the listener to follow up a little bit about that. Are you asking, say, should we have an ordained deaconate, diaconate? Should we adopt some kind of threefold office? Or is it just the, you know, the history of, of whatever a deacon is? Because we have deacons in the Missouri Synod now, but there's no set definition for what a deacon is. And so I think before the LCMS can have that discussion, they need to decide how they want to use the word. Are they elders? Are they mercy workers? Are vicars, you know, our vicars are close to what deacons would be in Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, except they're not, or Anglicanism, except they're not ordained. Right. So it, we have used it in a very fluid manner uh, in the Missouri Synod. Well, and I think right now, yeah, now even you add into the whole, the mix, the SMP program, which, you know, debates every, what, four to eight to 12 years, whether we're going to ordain guys before they finish the academic work or after they finish the academic work and we're going to ordain them, but just for this specific function as opposed to a general, you know, call into the ministry. So yeah, we, it's a mess, <laughs> yeah. uh, which makes it what, you know, what do you say about each of those different um, applications of the deacon? Right. Well, and you're not really going to understand what we mean by deacon until we fully understand what we mean by pastor, right? Because Ooh, we have... there we go. <laughs> There's the spicy take I was waiting on. <laughs> because we have such a, I don't know, how, whatever, whatever you want to call it, a take on what it means to be a pastor in the Missouri Synod, I think that's why we struggle with the definition of a deacon so much. Because you know we sort of assume that what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 3 is just talking about the same sort of thing, just in two different ways, right? Whereas, is right. he presenting it as the same thing, you know, just depending? 
or is he presenting it as two distinct offices? You know, that's the question that we really need to wrestle with. Right. Well, all right, guys, I think that's going to wrap up this conclave. It has been fun. Thank you all for being here. Always a pleasure. we got more in store for you this season here on A Word Fitly Spoken. So thank, thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Willie. Well, this has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills. Here with Zoe and Heidi, David Apple, Adam Koontz, and Aaron Upoff. God love you, and God bless.